Today we're broadcasting from Berkeley. We're here because it is a pillar of the tech and life sciences startup ecosystem of the greater Silicon Valley. When you think Berkeley, you think innovation and entrepreneurship, and I think startups. Hello, and welcome to the latest installment of our video blog series called Ask a Silicon Valley Lawyer. I'm Louis Lowe, the founder of L2 Council, and I'm here with my good friend, Natasha Allen. Natasha, please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Natasha Allen. I'm a founding partner of Allen & Hatcher. Um, I'm really glad you could join us, and what we wanted to impart to our audience today of entrepreneurs and management teams, investors, is how to think about the M&A process. It's a very daunting thing to think about the exit. It's always that thing that's far off in the future, and Natasha, it's now. It's now. So you're in your board meeting, and the investors start talking about, hey, you know, we're going to start a process. What does that mean, and how do you kind of think about it in steps? And and what would be the first thing that you would do coming out of that board meeting when you've got agreement that you're going to launch a sale process? Yes, exactly. So it depends on the size of the company. So you may have an investment banker that would help you in order to organize the process, line up some uh, potential buyers, and even just to help value your company in terms of how much should you be looking for in a transaction. We're going to do a different blog post about how to pick an investment banker, but that is a question in and of itself that's going to be in its own video blog. Right. But assuming you have an investment banker, let's just say you've hired one, because uh, your company needed one. Mm -hmm. um, how does the process then go? So originally you'll just have initial discussions, mm -hmm. so with potential buyers, and the initial discussions will really harp on you know, alignment. Are the two entities aligned? Are the buyer and the seller aligned? Uh, value? Uh, and kind of just getting a sense of what would you be acquiring? What would they be acquiring? So I'm going to back up a step and, and, um, and I think it's important when you've made that selection of your M&A investment banker is you're probably going to work together to create some sort of collateral Agreed. to go out and solicit the market and do some price discovery. So oftentimes we call that a confidential info memo or a SIM. Mm -hmm. And the most important part of the SIM are the projections for the rest of the year and the, the next year and the next three years. Exactly. And really investors are looking for growth. They're looking for margin and they're looking for um, adjacencies, I think, new product lines exactly. or, or, or reinforcements of existing product lines. Um, so you've, you've, let's say you've put that SIM together, you're ready to go send off your, your banker into the market. Do you have a discussion with them about who they should be talking to, whether it's strategic buyers, financial buyers, or should you just go out and say, talk to anyone and everyone? I think it depends on your objective. So are you looking to continue with the company so you want a strategic? Do I want to continue working? Uh, or is it a situation where it's a straight exit? I've done what I could do and I'm ready to move on. So I think those are the considerations that the seller has to think about on their own. Next phase, you've got your confidential info memo ready. Um, you're going to launch your investment banker out there to strategic buyers and financial buyers or some subset. What are they? What is a strategic buyer and what is a financial buyer? What, are, what do those terms mean? Exactly. So a strategic buyer would be a company or an organization that either wants to develop a product line or some type of um, aspect of their business that is exactly aligned with what this particular seller is doing. Um, it could also be something where it complements what they already have in existence. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be more of a strategic type acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, an exit would just be similarly uh, just a 
here's the money, thank you for your time, and you no longer have to work. Mm -hmm. uh, typically with uh, the strategics, you have things such as earnouts to try to incentivize the employees and also the founders to make sure that they stay, to see that growth in whatever the product or strategic alignment is mm -hmm. actually succeed in the future. A, a word about financial buyers, what are they? So that could be a private equity company, a private equity firm, um, where they uh, typically acquire a bunch of companies and sometimes allow them just to do their own thing, mostly allow them to do their own thing in terms of running their organization. Um, I think there's this hybrid buyer as well, which is um, a, str a strategic business that is already uh, owned by a private equity firm. Good and point. so you often find uh, that there's kind of three universes of buyers. There's the, the strategic op public company that's already in your space and you're either um, a competitor and they're swallowing you up or you're a product adjacency that they're putting into their sales channel. Exactly. Um, private equity firm, it's pure financial gain. Um, you know, they're, they're going to run your board, but you're going to operate the business. Uh, they'll maybe do some financial engineering, uh, some operational engineering, and drive some efficiencies. If, if you're a public company, they're going to help you uh, get rid of the public company costs uh, and synergies. But then there's this, this new category of, yeah. of what I call, you know, uh, bolt-ons where you know it's it's a your private equity firm comes in with a strategic portfolio company yeah. and it's unclear at that point are you going to be working for this portfolio company or, or are they going to be working for you yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's an interesting uh, dynamic so so you, you're, you're going out and you're doing this price discovery you know what other documents do you need handy and I'm thinking NDA uh, so definitely an NDA because part of this whole package that you'll be providing to these strategic or potential buyers uh, is confidential information, right? So it's information about the seller's uh, financials uh, in terms of projections, what they think their future will be. And you mm. want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and remains just a part of the discussion with the individual who's signed. Um, things to look for in the NDA, if you're the seller, I think, uh, are to think about whether you need a non-solicit mm -hmm. so that the buyer can't just poach your best employees. Um, another one is an anti-clubbing provision that uh, they can't lock up all the other potential debt sources or equity sources yeah. um, and uh, that they can't you know, partner up with, with other uh, private equity firms without your consent. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about NDAs and the termination clause and the survival period. Yes. Um, if you're talking to a strategic buyer and there's a residuals clause, mm -hmm. how worried should you be about uh, what they remember in their minds about your intellectual property, your code, your markets, your customers' pricing? How do you think about that? I think you have to be quite worried. I know that there are some situations, and I've kind of actually heard of some situations where uh, some buyers go out to get that information in order to just build it internally. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're kind of, you know, that you ensure that your NDA kind of covers off for those type of things. Lots of things to think about in your NDA, and you really need counsel at that point uh, exactly. to think about the NDA in light of who your potential buyers are. So we've got NDAs, we've got buyers, um, bid process letter, what do you think about that? Yeah, so bid process letter is a very interesting situation to be in. It's great because you have many buyers, uh, but it could be difficult in terms of managing all those different expectations. So uh, you have to ensure that you are not disclosing who you are actually engaging with in terms of this bid process, because right. then you may be in violation of your own NDA. Right. Um, you need to, uh, it's, it's a fine line between how much you do divulge versus divulging nothing at all. Um, but it could be a good way to strategically um, get a better buyer right, by right. hinting that there are others in you right. know, in interest of the company. Right. So if you've got an investment banker and uh, the the buy the 
potential buyer universe knows that there's a process going on, mm -hmm. they would expect to receive a bid process letter. And typically there are two or three phases. The first is, you know, we've given you just the SIM, give us a range of values. Then the next phase would be, okay, we gave you an access to a data room, give us a more narrow range of, of price. And then maybe a final bid process letter, give us your best and final number, and sometimes even mark up this contract. Yeah. Um, but that's in the great situation where you've got multiple bidders. Um, yeah. um, we often call them the cover bidder uh, and, and the, the, the really desired uh, potential buyer. But let's say you have, um, you know, a lot of bankers will tell you, you never want to look like you're for sale. So mm -hmm. you, you don't want to do a, a bid process letter. Um, how do you drive that conversation to conclusion? And I'm thinking about terms sheet LOI and at what point does that happen? Uh, so term sheet LOI is when you've actually a bidder or a buyer has come forward and said yes uh, you've sent me your bid uh, documentation and I actually want to move forward so typically the LOI or term sheet would have more of the details in terms of how the agreement would look. So you're going to get into more details in terms of uh, the structure of right. the transaction sometimes. Right. Uh, for sure, what the value would be. What right. was the buyer willing to pay? Uh, what exactly are they acquiring? Mm -hmm. If it's a strategic, is it going to be the employees are going to be taken on? Mm -hmm. um, You'll have an exclusivity period in the term sheet. That's which what the is, buyer wants, right? That's what the barrier buyer wants. Uh, so that means that in terms of the seller being, out to go, being able to go out and acquire other buyers, they're limited on doing that for a period of time. And typically that's put in place so that the buyer can ensure that they can figure out their process to make sure they want to move forward. And, and how long should a seller agree to an exclusivity period with a buyer? And, and as you just said, as mm -hmm. I understand it, the exclusivity period means you can't give any information to another buyer, you can't talk to another buyer, buyer calls you, you can't even pick up the phone, you can't pick up the phone uh, yeah. they email you, you don't answer the, the email yeah. for, you know, is that 30 days, 45 days, 60 days? It is varies. it extendable? What's, what's market? So it varies. So it could be typically 30 to 45 days is what you see. Um, I've seen some where there's an evergreen clause, which I would probably say do not have that, where it automatically just extends because otherwise you don't have any incentive for the buyer to move the process forward quickly. Right. You don't want to be in a forever holding pattern while the buyer still figures out if they want to acquire you or not. Um, so definitely have an opportunity to renew it or extend the period. Um, but I would definitely say make sure that that's a discussion and not an automatic evergreen. So let's say you're a seller. You've got your, your headline purchase price, that your, your dream purchase price that you're looking for. Buyer gives you an exclusivity clause. Your lawyer's fine with it. It's whatever number of days you're fine with. Mm -hmm. um, what happens once you sign that term sheet? Once you sign the term sheet, you're locked in. So you want to make sure that you're reviewing and understanding what exactly you're signing up for. Uh, most buyers, and in most situations, you think of the LOI as a cheat sheet. So that's what they're going to base the definitive agreements on. They're going to base whatever type of purchase agreement is, is going to be based on the specific term sheet. So if there is anything in that term sheet that you're concerned about uh, in terms of how an earnout is structured, or you're concerned about what is the breakdown between cash and stock, or what is the... Um, vesting period that's now associated with uh, specific stock that may be issued or how will I be treated in ensuring that you have all of if you have milestones making sure that you have all of the requirements that you'll need in order to achieve those milestones but this is a term sheet and an LOI right it's supposed to be a short form there's going to be long-form definitive agreements uh, that are drafted after that and all sorts of process like I just want to sell I want to get going mm -hmm. like uh should, should I sign this thing or what are the key things that I need to, to, to lock up? 
I think the key things you need to lock up is to make sure you understand the pricing and how it's going to be paid out. Uh, when are you going to be paid? So in terms of do you get an initial cash balance and then the, some will be held back? Uh, you want to figure out, is there going to be an escrow? Right. Are you going to be holding money back from all stockholders? Because you have to take into consideration, if you're a larger company as well, that you can't just sell the company on your own. You need to get authorizations from the other shareholders. Okay, Natasha. So great things have happened. Mm -hmm. We've gone out into the market. We've discovered the very best price that we could. We've got it. We've got a buyer that we like. We've got a term sheet and an LOI we like. What happens next? So next, you go into the diligence phase. Uh, sometimes the diligence phase can be pretty grinding, but if you're a company that has records that are organized from the inception, which I would highly harp on, is making sure that everything is in order, um, it shouldn't be that painful. So typically, uh, with the diligence process, there's a set of standard documents that a buyer would look at. So they're looking at what were your formation documents? When were you formed? Mm -hmm. Were you properly formed? Mm -hmm. Who's authorized to actually allow for this particular transaction? Uh, depending on what business you're in, they're going to look at your customer contracts mm -hmm. to make sure if it's a strategic that um, you know, those contracts don't automatically terminate upon a change of control. Mm. Um, you also want to make sure that, uh, that no notices have to go out to any customers mm. in, to in order to tell them that, you know, there's a potential contract or, sorry, transaction happening. Mm -hmm. um, you also look at the employee contracts to make sure that there are no triggers right. that result from a particular transaction. Right. Um, you want to make sure that the employees actually have um, values or dollar values or salaries that are consistent with whatever the strategic is looking at right. acquiring. Right. Um, you look at benefits. How do the benefits work? How are they going to be transitioned? Are you going to cancel them? Um, and mainly you want what the buyer is looking for is do you own, if it's an IP company or technology company, we're in the Valley, so that's what we're mainly interested in, do you own the technology that you're actually selling? Uh, and that could be pretty tricky. Yeah, um, I think that's really good advice. Um, but you know, if I, if I uh, have already gone through this whole price discovery phase and given all this information to a buyer, I, isn't the diligence done? No. Okay, so that was business diligence and post-term sheet, this is legal diligence. Exactly. Okay, right. So we're talking about legal diligence. Um, sometimes that can look like a 20-page Excel document with a thousand lines of questions exactly. uh, that you have to fill in answers to or provide, uh, provide documents. Um, where are you going to provide those documents? So typically you have a, what's called a data room set up. So that's a secure, some, mostly on site, online on site. Uh, so it's up in the cloud. In the cloud where you is upload. Is it safe? Is it encrypted? It's encrypted. It's safe. Uh, buyer typically opens the data, the data room mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the seller would just upload whatever documents that are being requested. So it's a pretty safe environment where people can collaborate in terms of downloading or uploading documents and then the buyer can just review whatever you've uploaded. But but if the transaction doesn't happen and I've given the buyer all these documents, how do I get them back? Uh, usually the data room is taken down uh, and... Uh, Viral certified destruction. That it's destructed, right. yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, how long does this diligence phase last? You want to make sure you cut it off because you don't want, you could go forever for diligence. So right. um, I would say usually the buyer will have initial questions. So they'll have initial lists to say, we want these set of documents and they'll review them. Uh, you'll typically have maybe one set of follow-ups in terms of, you know, we have some additional questions, but after that, you probably should be wrapping it up. But also while you're doing diligence, concurrently you should also be drafting the, the definitive agreement. So it's not one finishes and then the other begins because that would severely slow the process. So we're doing two things in tandem. Two we're doing things in tandem. diligence and documents. And do 
documents. So I find that buyers want to have a little bit of diligence done before they draft mm -hmm. um, in terms of legal. And I find that something that can be really helpful uh, at the outside of diligence is if you, the seller, finish answering all the diligence questions, put them up online, and then before you light up, you light up the buyer and give them access, you do a call, an mm -hmm. overview call, and exactly. you tell them, here are the things you need to know. If there is some litigation that you've got that's pending, and maybe you're, you're, you know that some parts of it will be in the data room, but others aren't, you're mm -hmm. going to say this is all of this is going to be discussed on a phone call. Um, you, you identify what the real issues are yeah. for, this, for the buyer so that they don't discover them, because if the buyer is discovering issues uh, in, in documents that you haven't told them about, I think that's, uh, that can be a big problem. You make a good point, because I think a lot of people think that they could hide things, but in reality you're better off just having it said up front and making sure that the buyer can address it. Natasha, this whole diligence thing sounds painful. Um, how do you bring it to conclusion? I think you just always have to say that diligence will always be going on in the background, uh, and that's just the reality of these transactions. So um, how do you get to the end? Of diligence? Yes. Uh, what is a document that's going to be required um, upon the conclusion of this transaction or any transaction will be what's called a disclosure schedule. Aha, uh -huh. what are those? So disclosure schedules are where you can, I think of it as an out for a seller yeah. in some regards, uh, where if there is something that's said in the agreement that is supposed to be true, but perhaps there is some reason or exception Exception. Um, yeah. You're just put it in the disclosure schedule. Right. And then at least the buyer and everyone is on notice that these things are being excluded. So if you've got something on the schedule of exceptions or the disclosure schedules, are you liable for that or you're not liable for depends that? Depends on the language and depends on where you are. Mostly you're not liable, Mostly I think, not, in, yeah. unless there's some funky language. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I would note that in European deals, you're not liable for anything at all that's in the data room. Yeah. In U.S. deals, the rule is that uh, if you haven't put it on the disclosure schedules, it's not within the four corners as the contract, um, uh, you open. you you would be liable unless it's it's there it's on the disclosure schedule or schedule exceptions. Um, so I want to kind of flip into documentation, and and I wanted to share this idea that um, sometimes when diligence seems like it's going on forever, um, what I try and do is indicate to the buyer, hey, um, to give us to get more diligence, we need to get you know more documents from you. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the draft SPA or draft merger agreement. Maybe I need the employment draft employment agreement for my CEO who's going to be an employee of the buyer. Mm -hmm. Something like that, yeah. um, and, and that can help uh, focus people's attention. Um, but I agree with your your comment that disclosure is is going on all the way until the end. I want to flip over to the documentation phase, mm -hmm. and which is as you noted starting maybe a little bit after the disclosure or di diligence phase begins. Um, how does that roll and how do you plan for the documentation phase? So typically, initially, the first draft would come from the buyer. Uh -huh. uh, you obviously review the first draft. You have specialists because usually specialists are engaged and typically those could be anywhere from IP counsel to tax counsel. Uh, your corporate attorney will review. Um, you probably have about two back and forths mm -hmm. and then if there is going to a third, you just have a call and hash it out. Uh, that means the buyer's counsel as well as the seller's counsel, mm -hmm. you know, try to hash out the last few points that are causing the sticking issues. Yeah, and it, it, if we weren't in a pandemic, I, I always argue that it's really helpful to get every all the key players in a room uh, for a morning or an afternoon, maybe even a day, and get through everything. So that at the end of the day, you know whatever short list of issues that remain open and you kind of have a path to 
closing out those issues so you can move towards signing. Okay. Um, to get a signing, both the boards of directors, the buyers and the sellers are going to have to agree on that. Typically the, the buyer is going to want unanimous board approval from the seller just to be sure that there aren't any uh, squirrels uh, in the walls. Um, and they're typically going to want uh, a whole lot of other conditions to be satisfied uh, between the time of signing and closing. So we get to signing, mm -hmm. we've locked up our disclosure schedules. Um, what happens between signing and closing? So there are, could be a whole slew of things that need to be done. Uh, you could be receiving con uh, consents. So as I mentioned before, some of your customer contracts need consents. Uh, you could be in a regulatory situation. So who knows if you need to get some type of government authority to approve the transaction in and of itself. Um, you could uh, sometimes even financing. So ensuring that the financing is actually closing so that the transaction can close. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just a matter that you sign and you can walk away. There's still work to be done. Um, this is a, a time to do really careful work to make sure that uh, your closing happens on time mm -hmm. uh, without a major incident um, and that you get to closing. And as we saw in the first half of the year, you know, this pandemic uh, came up uh, in, in various stages of, of uh, that we've previously discussed, whether it was before the term sheet, after the term sheet, after yeah. the signing, after the closing even. And uh, who bears the risk uh, of those things, uh, Natasha? I mean, we're sit standing atop uh, uh, Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley, uh, the hallmark of tech in the East Bay. Mm -hmm. What if there's an earthquake and your factory is damaged in between signing and closing? You know, who, who bears the risk? Do you still close, do you not? Depends. It depends on what the contract says. Uh, most of these agreements have some type of out if there's a catastrophe. Right. Um, but it really just depends on what the transaction. If you're far enough along, you may be able just to close. Right. Uh, if you're at the closing stage, you're probably not going to shut down. It, 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 to your point, it all depends on what's written in the contract. Mm -hmm. And in any case, it's in everyone's interest that you get to close quickly. Yes. And so getting all of these formalities done, whether it's filing a Hart Scott Rodino notification with the Department of Justice, whether it's filing a proxy with the SEC, uh, whether it's getting your stockholder approval, um, good advisors will help you get that done quickly. Agreed. Um, so it's closing day. Mm -hmm. um, what's next? Money. <laughs> <laughs> you typically at closing you get some type of you should get some portion of the compensation which was already agreed on in the agreement uh, pre, prior to closing you're probably already dealing with how you would integrate if it's a strategic type situation um, so you probably are already meeting with teammates on the buyer side that you'll be working with and already probably starting projects um, so so really integration with the buyers been happening all along all along, along. Yeah. All along. All along yeah. um, so make friends yes be nice to people <laughs> exactly. uh, you'll be working with them uh, on this company or on another company mm -hmm. uh, thank your supporters and spouses and significant others uh, think about your estate plan whether it still makes sense hopefully you did some planning before thank you for joining us if you have any questions please feel free to reach out to me natasha allen founding partner of allen hatcher uh, I can be reached at Natasha at AlanHatcher.com. Thanks so much for doing this, Natasha. I'm Louis Lowe, the founder of L2 Council. You can always find me through my website, L2Council.com. Thanks for joining us and look forward to the next Ask a Silicon Valley Lawyer video blog.